American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of. <clears throat> I'm Amy and that's Joe. Yes, and we are in love. <laughs> and this is episode 183. Wow. <laughs> it's just like monotonous. If you're still listening. God bless you. You are special. God bless you. You are a cool person and we like you. I can't believe you're listening to all these episodes. Even our friends stopped listening a long time ago and told us <laughs> they don't like us anymore. All right. Anyway, so we are, those of you who get it are listening. If you've listened this long, you get what we do. We jump in. You get it. You get it. We're true crime. We're history. We're chronology. We're pop culture. We're news-worthy things we're that happen. We're paranormal sometimes. Paranormal, and we're going to be paranormal today. Whee! Spoiler alert. I got a cool UFO story. Uh, and this one is gives me chills, so it's real. Anyway, we're All 1955. Right. 1955 was a huge year for UFOs. <clears throat> um. All right, and we are in July right yeah, now. Yeah, July and August we're going to cover uh, 1955, 55. So we're going to jump right in because we got so much. We don't have time for all the bullshit, all the right. all the kind of damn chatter up top. We don't have time for it anymore. That's right. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants to hear our stupid shit about our day. Nobody cares for Nobody it. Nobody cares that we had breakfast for dinner tonight. Nobody yeah, wants to know about cares. that. All right, go for it. July 2nd, 1955, the Lawrence Welk Show premiered on ABC. Nice. Up until now, we didn't have the Lawrence Welk Show. It didn't exist. And now it exists. Now we're in a world where it exists. And there's a sizable amount of the population that probably has no idea what we're talking about. The Lawrence Welk Show? Yeah. Because all the bubbles and all that? Yeah. That's all I remember about it was the bubbles. Yeah, me too. I didn't really, my, my grandfather loved it and watched now, it. You just yelled at our child. For putting her drink on the arm of the sofa. And here you are. Uh, there's a difference between the sofa in the living room that costs money that we're still paying off. It doesn't matter. You know, the, how, you know what the, a pain in the butt that it would be to clean up if it fell down to the crack of the sofa? This is the sofa in the garage in our podcast studio that's covered in stains. I know, but... I'm and there's nowhere it. else to put it, so that's where I put it. I wow. always put it here. I'm an adult. I'm allowed to do that. Okay. She is a kid, and it's... Onyx furniture we haven't paid off yet. True. This is our shitty garage couch. Anyway, so as you probably gathered, I had to yell at my daughter for putting her drink on the armrest of our couch. Yeah. In the living room. And I'm putting my Moscow mule that I'm drinking on the armrest of the garage couch in our shitty podcast studio. And also, sorry, everyone, to just shock you into reality, but our podcast studio is not... Very a palace. nice. It's not, not a palace. It's not super nice. It is very shitty. But All right. it works. It's a podcast studio. Anyway, Lawrence Welk. All right. My grandpa watched it. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Anyway, July 9th. We spent way too much time on this. July 9th, 1955. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Frederick Morrow, but he became the first African-American executive on the U.S. White House staff. 
Oh, cool. Nineteen fifty-five. That shocked me that that happened that early. I'm surprised uh, because everybody was fucking racist. I know. July 9th, we have a birthday that same day. Hit it, Matt Truman, Ego Trip, greatest band in the world that plays our theme song with about Amy Hate's birthday. Amy, Amy Hate's birthday. Amy Hate's birthday. Thank you, Matt Truman. Jimmy Smith's American actor. Whoops, I forgot I was going to make you guess who it was. Oh, God, I'm so glad. But now you can't guess who Jimmy Smith is. Jimmy Smith. Do you know who he is? Yes. What shows has he been on? Oh, the cop. He's a cop show Yeah, guy. what's he most known for? Uh, he was on NYPD Blue, and he was in the movie Running Scared. He was on Dexter. But what is he most known for? He was on Dexter? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, in a season. He was in Star Wars, too, but he's oh. most known for like his biggest work. I don't know. L.A. LA Law. Law. L.A. Law, good yeah, job. And he was sure. born in Brooklyn, New York. Everybody was, has been on L.A. Law, so that was a pretty safe guess. Yeah, but he was like a big deal on L.A. Law. Yeah, that's true. No, you're thinking of Law and Order. Oh. L.A. Law was oh, not now that. I got it. him, Corbin I got it Burnson. Now. That's right. The guy with the butt chin. Anyway, Jimmy Smith was born in Brooklyn. His father, Cornelis Leendert Smith, was from Paramaribo, Paramaribo, Suriname, and was of Dutch descent. I'm just going to say, really quick. Yeah? That if... His mother was Puerto Rican. If you... If you can't pronounce something... <laughs> It's probably best to leave it out. I'm just going to say because it, it can't be pleasant to listen to. Nah, it's pleasant. It, because it's excruciating for me. Paramaribo. That's because you don't you don't love me anymore. You've been trapped in a loveless marriage with me. His mom is Puerto Rican. He has two sisters, Yvonne and Diana. Grew up in a working class neighborhood. At 10 years old, he lived in Puerto Rico for a couple of years. Uh, until then, he didn't even speak Spanish. So that was difficult. Uh, but anyway... Jimmy Smith was an athlete in his youth, graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School. Notable alumni include Howard Zinn yeah. and Danny Kay. Okay. So now you know that Jimmy Smith and Howard Zinn went to the same school. Okay. Um, and I can't believe I have I forgot to look up the team colors and the mascot. Oh, thank I'm God. a terrible person. Anyway, so we're going to go past that one and go to July 11th. Mm-hmm. July 11th, 1955 is when Congress authorizes all U.S. currency to start saying, in God we trust. Yeah. Okay, and that's people? probably where they put it in the in the Pledge of Allegiance, too. Okay, people? It didn't happen until 1955, so we weren't founded on that. Yeah. What's crazy is we were founded on religious liberty and freedom and any religion. Separation of church and state. Not just saying God exists. So I kind of looked a little bit into this. President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed into law... H.R. 619, the bill that required the inscription of In God We Trust appear on all paper and coin currency. Representative Charles E. Bennett of Florida introduced the resolution in the House where it won fast backing from the Committee on Banking and Currency and support from like-minded members such as Herman Eberharder of Pennsylvania and Orrin Harris of Arkansas. Quote, nothing can be more certain than that our country was founded in a spiritual atmosphere and with a firm trust in God, Bennett proclaimed on the White House floor. Which is not true no, at all. No, was Thomas Jefferson an point. atheist? Yeah, I think so. While the sentiment of trust in God is universal and timeless, these particular four words, in God we trust, are indigenous to our country. Furthermore, Bennett invoked the Cold War struggle in arguing for the That's measure. That's what it's really about. In these days when imperialistic and materialistic communism seek to attack and destroy freedom, we should continually look for ways to strengthen foundations, the foundations of our freedom, he said. Adding, in God we trust the currency... 
Uh, Bennett believed would serve as a constant reminder that the nation's political and economic fortunes were tied to its spiritual faith. Uh, (laughs) I know, it's so, yeah. The inscription had appeared on most U.S. coins since the Civil War when Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase, Salmon P. Chase, first urged its use. Until the passage of the law, however, it didn't appear on paper currency from time to time. Had not been inscribed on certain classes of coins. So well, and it's going to be on there forever because who's the president that's going to take that off? Nobody's going to be like, yeah, uh, we're taking God God we trust out of there. The only way that would happen is if we officially found out for sure. Like some alien came, there was no God. An alien overlord came down. It's like, by the way, I created all of you guys. God's not real. Of course, people still wouldn't believe it. They'd still be like, Jesus. Yeah. Um, so that's the only way we could. Or if we stop using currency and we start using... Bitcoin. I was thinking Nilla wafers would be a good <laughs> thing. We Cryptocurrency. Got, we'd be rich. we got so many Nilla wafers. Or, you know what would, would be the best currency for us would be Cool Ranch Dorito bags, fun-sized yeah. bags. If that's our currency, we are rich because nobody, nobody likes those. those. I lo- used to love Cool Ranch, but I got my <laughs> fill of it because I have to eat them all. Anyway, July 14th, <laughs> 1955, back to the timeline. Two people were killed, and many were dazed when lightning strikes an Ascot racecourse in England. I know that's not in America, but uh, it was a lightning strike. Oh, wow. According to the International Journal of Meteorology, uh, many spectators were sheltering from heavy thunder and rain near a refreshment, a.k.a. tea, tent, and an ice cream stand located opposite of the royal enclosure. According to some witnesses, there were three lightning flashes in quick succession, with the third striking the metal fencing near the tent. It ran along the rails as a brilliant blue light then passed via side flashes and ground current to those people standing near the rails and others further away sheltering near the refreshment tent. Those nearest the fence appeared to be more seriously injured. Around 50 people were thrown off their feet and left flying unconscious. Jeez. Injured or were walking about dazed and confused. I guess so. Other spectators, police, and doctors rushed to help, and ambulances were called to transfer the individuals to local hospitals. And the two people who died, one woman, Mrs. Barbara Batt, 28 years of age, was killed instantly. She was expecting her first baby in about four months. Another person, Leonard Tingle, age 51, died later in the hospital one Poor day after being struck. I know, I feel bad for Leonard Tingle and Barbara Batt. All those affected by the lightning strike were transferred to the casualty departments of the nearby Windsor group of hospitals, although some had recovered by the time of their arrival, such that they were thir- 37 were admitted. Mm. Uh, yeah, there was. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine? No. Um, they did say that some, the, a lot of those people suffered, you know. Da- like long-term damage. I'm sure. And people said they first felt, most of the people said they first felt a sudden shooting pain in a limb or a sensation of being struck on the back of the neck, followed by a weakness and pins and needles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latter effect lasted for two to three hours in some of those cases. Oh my. Yeah, we should ask our sister-in-law what it's like to be struck by lightning. She's been struck by lightning, I think, like 10 times or something. Who? Um, Susie. You're kidding. She just got struck by lightning. Wow. I don't know about 10 times, but she was holding the, a door handle. Oh, I think I did remember this story. When she got struck by lightning. She, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not laughing at the fact that it had to be scary. She survived. She's fine. But I guess she got struck by lightning and it like 
don't know if it hit the car and then hit her. Got something to do with holding up, and she went flying and oh my landed goodness. on the ground or whatever, and was singed. And got uh, got superpowers later. So that's the jip is that you don't get the superpowers. I don't think jip is a oh, racially sensitive right. thing to say. July seventeenth, nineteen fifty-five, according to the Guardian. This was a thunderstormy time. A thunderstorm swept across Flanders in Belgium. Uh, lightning struck a pylon carrying a power line. You know those big yeah. metal power line yeah. things? That's a pylon. And it unleashed a colossal explosion oh underground, leaving a crater 20 meters deep and 40 meters wide. Wow. A cow was killed. The pylon was destroyed. Windows and houses for miles around were shattered, but no one was injured. Really? See, the lightning had detonated a mine left deep underground from the First World War. In 1917, Ugh, the British laid kidding. 19 mines packed with 454 tons of explosives in tunnels under the German trenches in the Messine Ridge. So that detonated all that. Oh, my that God. Nuts? Yes. Nobody was hurt. That's and the craziest part. That's the craziest part. And that's the same day that Disneyland televised its grand opening in Anaheim, California. So you can always remember those two things happened Sorry. at the same time. Yeah, silence your phones, people. Sorry, everybody. We're recording a podcast. And that brings us right to Amy's awful, oh. horrible, no good event on July 20th, 1955, when a victim's body was found by San Francisco Examiner reporter Ed Montgomery in a shallow grave a few hundred feet from a cabin. That's right. Hold on one second. I'm trying to... Put your shirt back on. This is not a nudist podcast. <laughs> no, put your... No, it's not All right, time stop. to have stop, 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 stop. Okay. I'm going to tell the tale of the murder of Stephanie Bryan. Ooh. Yes. I hope it's And not this a is child. basically, just like last time... Yeah. Um, this is basically a blow-by-blow blow of an episode of A Crime to Remember. <laughs> so you love watching A Crime to Remember. From now on, this podcast <laughs> this will just, just be Amy's you. recap of a show she watched. <laughs> That's right. Hey, it's better than reading word for word somebody's article. Goddamn. Another phone call. Hold on. Okay. Is it the cops? I think. So this is Berkeley, California. Okay. Stephanie Bryan was a 14-year-old girl. And her body was found on July 20th. But we're backing up a little bit. Okay, we're going to back up. So she's a 14-year-old girl living in California. She was a typical all-American girl. Now, I'm going to say just now, not to not to speak ill of the dead, but I generally don't care for 14-year-old girls. I, well, that's probably a good thing, I guess. Well, our daughter... It's 13. Oh, she's not 14. I was like, I was just going to say I'm mad at her. Yeah, but I, anyway. I'm mad at our 13-year-old girl <laughs> right now. For being bad. All right. Anyway. On April 28th, 1955. Oh, April 28th, 1955, the same day that German bass player Dieter Rubach was born in Zollingen, North Rhine-Westphalia, Germany. He was uh, in the heavy metal band Accept, and later on in 1983, he started his own band, Bad Steve, a heavy metal band called Bad Steve. That's why you put that on there? That's why I put that in there. And I started listening to it, and it's actually pretty... Kick ass. Oh so if you haven't ever heard of Bad Steve, look up their albums and buy them. All right. Yes. On that day, she vanished. So Berkeley, California at that time was very leave it to beaverish, they said. It was? Yeah. It wasn't like hippies and all that yet. Not in 1955. Berkeley was just like. It was much more. Like it was kind of upper middle class. Nice grass. Every yes. lawn was the same. Yep. Everybody's yes. dad wore a 
tie. And the family was well off and had moved from Massachusetts two years previously. Must be nice. Dad was a doctor. Okay. They were proper New Englanders. Okay. The first sign that something wasn't right was that Stephanie, who was a very well-behaved child, didn't come home from school. Oh, that's not She was good. supposed to get home at 3.15. So then when it turned into 4, Mom mm. thought something wasn't right, so yes. she called the school. Oh, I hate that. She Oof. found out that she had left as usual. She had oh, left gosh, school. The, so. sink, the heart sinks. See, now, yeah. before we had kids, this wouldn't affect me. I'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But now that I have a kid, especially that age, yeah. and we just, like, just tonight, we didn't know yeah. where our daughter was, and she came on her phone was dead, and we're mad. Um, right. We're not, of course, we're not mad at her. We're mad because we love her, and we're worried. Right. You know, it's being a worried parent sucks, man. I know. And, it's, and we're only just beginning this journey of yes. always being worried about our kids. And yes. it's going to happen more and more and more, always worried where they are. So as a parent, it really is true what they say. Once you're a parent... You completely change your perspective, and you have more empathy and stuff, mm-hmm. especially for kids and yep. stuff. So, ugh, so anyway, go ahead. When it turned into four, mom thought something was okay. I already said that. She, Sorry, yeah. She, then she got worried. So she, she, ca- she left. She called Stephanie's friends. Then yeah. Stephanie was nowhere. One friend, a girl uh. named Marianne Stewart, had been with had been with Stephanie after school. Okay. Marianne said that they went to the library, and Stephanie checked out some books, well, and then they went to the donut shop and bought donuts. Oh, so that's. Calming and relaxing and reassuring. Then they started to walk home but went their separate ways when they had gotten to the wooded path. So now not so reassuring. Okay, not so reassuring because of the wooded path. Can we back up a little bit to the donuts for a second? Sure. Don't you think, I mean, donuts now are delicious. Yeah. And we've come a long way health-wise. But 1955 donuts. What do you think? They had to be terrible for you, even worse. Like everything was terrible for you. So they must have used tons more butter. And stuff. So I, I don't know. There's more preservatives and stuff now. It was things were much more pure ingredients back then. Yeah, but do you think it tasted better than they do now? Like I don't know. I bet a 1955 donut was delicious. Is all I'm saying. Okay. Anyway, so the wooded path. Yes. Wait. So what happened with the wooded? She, she they, said she they saw, go their separate ways. They went their separate way, and, and the, she last saw her. Yes. Go down a wooden Correct. path. Okay. Correct. So mom is getting more and more anxious. Ugh. So then at 5.30 in the afternoon, the dad Ugh. comes home and they call the, and he calls the police. Yeah. They yeah. arrive shortly after that. And uh, mom and dad describe Stephanie as wearing a blue cardigan, turquoise skirt, and red saddle shoes. Oh, you would have loved that outfit. I know. Stephanie was the oldest of five. She was very bookish and quiet is what they said. It's always the bookish and quiet ones you worry about. At 9 o'clock, they put out an APB. At that point, the media became aware of what was going on. Okay. And back in 1955, there were four major newspapers in the Bay Area. Okay. And they were all competing with each other to get the first scoop on the case. Uh, with the missing persons case, the police need the media because they helped spread the word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the tips started coming in. A Navy lieutenant said he saw a man driving very erratically, and in the back of the car he saw a young girl. And he said he saw the man turn around and hit her. White male, brown hair, but a very general description Wait, of the hit car. Wait, hit her with the car? No, with his hand. He, the girl was in the car with him. Oh. Sorry, there was a bug in my Moscow mule, so I got distracted. All right. Talking to reading a story to you is like reading a story to a <laughs> three-year-old. Just want you to know. <laughs> I'm drinking. Three-year-olds no, don't drink Moscow you're very, mules. You're very distractible. Um, so he saw the man turn around and hit her. Okay. He was a white male. He had brown hair, but that was a very general description of the car. And he didn't know if it was... Her. Don't know. No license plate. He nothing really point toward in a specific individual. So Ugh, that didn't so very, help. Yeah, didn't help. The police set up a base at the Bryan home. Okay. There they first their first thought was ransom. 
So yeah. they wiretap so the, the home, yeah, tap wait the, the phone, call. Yeah. Later that night, the phone rings. 32 hours after Stephanie's goes missing. Oh, my gosh. Um, the person says that he wants $5,000 for the safe return of Stephanie. Okay. Well, so like clockwork, like they knew it was going to be a ransom situation because they have money, I guess. Yeah. The caller said, I want you to drop the money in West Oakland. No cops. Of course. So Dr. Brian quickly gets the cash and makes a beeline for the spot with the cops, of course. Of course. A man w- walks up to his car and asks, are you her father? The cops spring out and catch him. Yeah. And he's an 18-year-old named L.C. Elliott. And Elliot, who is black, tells them that he's been paid by a white man to collect the ransom. Probably right. But when the cops searched the area, they came up with nothing. The whole thing smelled wrong. So eventually he just broke down and said, I I didn't know anything about kidnapping, but I read about it and thought I could make some money. So four days after Stephanie disappears, a man driving down the road pulls over to go to the bathroom. He sees a book. It's Stephanie's French book. It was found on Franklin Canyon Road, which is an hour from where she disappeared. Hmm. So this crime scene is now extended. So this LC guy, they they don't think he did anything, no. right? Oh, they, this is just a hoax. Yeah. Okay, good. So now the crime scene has extended well beyond the Bay Area. Okay. Too much time has passed without a ransom call. Okay. So now police are worried about the worst. Yeah. Um, back in 1955, they didn't know anything about profiling or investigative criminal analysis. Yeah. So there's not a lot more to go on than contacting people that may have had the propensity to do something like this. Mm-hmm. So they haul in all the what they called lowlifes, flashers, mashers, pervs, and jerkers. <laughs> Wait, they called the pervs and the jerkers? Yeah. Oh, man. They pervs had, and jerkers is my band's name. They called them all. That came to a dead end as well, though. <laughs> Stephanie's disappearance had been headline news by this time for over two months. Yeah. There was a $2,500 reward. The case was cold. So, then, in a house in Alameda, Georgia Abbott, a 33-year-old cosmetologist, goes mm-hmm. down into her basement and finds a red leather purse. Inside the purse, she finds Stephanie Bryan's library card. Wait, this old lady finds the purse in her basement? She's not an old lady. She's like a, you know, middle-aged, a middle-aged 30s, age. probably 30s. Oh. So, okay. yeah, she finds this purse in her basement with Stephanie Bryan's library card in it. Okay. So she takes it to the police. Okay. And detectives go in, and they try to figure out how the item ended up in her basement. How was this in your basement, lady? She said Mrs. she had Abbott. gone down in the basement to look for a hat for a costume. Okay. And her husband, who is Burton Abbott. Burton Abbott is her husband. He's George's husband. He's 27. He's an account an accounting student at UC Berkeley. He sounds suspect. Police want to question him. Sorry, and they find students. out that they've been married seven years and living in the neighborhood for five years. Oh, boy. Burton said he had been cooking, and then his wife came up and showed him the purse. They recognized the name from the paper. So Burton and Georgia, and Burton and Georgia also lived with Burton's mother, Elsie. Oh, her She's name was Elsie also? Elsie. Whose other Elsie's name is Elsie? The guy who tried to hoax him. It's no, Elsie. Elsie. Yeah, was, but it still sounds the same. Yeah, it does. That's true. Sorry. I didn't think about I'm that. I'm an idiot. Georgia told police that the whole family had access to the basement. You know, so Yeah, everybody can go to the basement whenever you want. But then they had also used the basement as a polling station for the election a few months before. So a lot of the public was down there. Including pervs and jerkers. Probably. Police, so police questioned Burton's neighbor, Otto. Yeah, because he was probably weird. Well, he was there when they came, when the, they called the police and the police came. Yeah. This neighbor guy was there with, the, with them. Otto showed up? Otto. 
So and they, Otto's a creep. He's a neighbor. So they questioned him and because he, he was at the residence when they had arrived. He told them that he was a family friend and that Georgia works at his wife's beauty salon. So, Georgia works at his wife's beauty salon. Okay. Yeah. Otto Desmond was married to Leona Desmond, who owned the beauty parlor where Georgia worked. He was an ex-Marine, did a little construction work. He said that he was at the construction job at the time of the crime. Georgia said she was at the beauty parlor that day. Burton said he was headed up to the family cabin for a fishing trip about 300 miles away. Hmm. He stopped off for a meal at the chuck wagon and another place for some drinks, then arrived at the cabin. So police went to check this cabin out. Mm-hmm. No signs of Stephanie. They ask a waitress at the chuck wagon, and she recognizes him. She described what he was wearing, which matched what he had said he was wearing. So this cleared Burton. So the cops turned the Abbott's house inside out. Burton's car really matched what the description of what people had called in with leads. So they checked his car, too. So um, they also go down into the basement, and it's like half dirt, half pavement in the basement. Okay. So they decide to start digging. In the basement? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you can just, yeah. Police find a book in the dirt that um, Stephanie had checked out from the library. Oh, no. They also find her glasses and her bra. Oh, no. Obviously, something horrible happened to Stephanie. Yep. So, Burton. In the Burton basement. He denied that he had anything to do with it. He said he's, he's being framed and that other people had access to the basement. He agreed to take a polygraph test to try to get his private life back, basically. As we know, those aren't accurate. Um, Because the media had infiltrated his home by this point. So he was just like, fine, I'll take a polygraph test. But And it was administered by a man named Al Wydell, who was one of the top polygraphers in the country. Okay. During the examination, he said that on the day in question, he left home and went to his wife's parlor to say hello at about 10 o'clock a.m. Then he drove up to Weaverville to the cabin. He stopped for gas. He doesn't have a receipt. He stopped for dinner. He stopped at the Wildwood Inn and had a drink. Mm-hmm. Said hello to the owner, then went to the cabin and went to bed. On the route to the cabin was Franklin Canyon Road, where Stephanie's French book had been found. Mm-hmm. The results of the polygraph were inconclusive, so yeah. they couldn't tell. They couldn't tell if he was lying or not. But even if they said he was in, either way, right, he can't do it. So then they get an anonymous note. Okay. And the note says it's not Burton who they need to look at. It's Georgia and Otto. Really. So the detectives decide to question Burton's mother, who may know what's going on between okay. Georgia and Otto and Burton. Oh, she might have some insight on an affair or something, something. maybe? Yeah. Mm. So Elsie says, Georgia jumps from man to man. She's unfaithful to her son. She's unfaithful to my son. Okay. That's basically what she says. So you have Burton saying something. someone is framing me, and Elsie saying Otto could be one of those people. Right. Investigators recall that they thought Georgia and Otto were a little cozy when they... Went to yeah the something beginning. going on. You can feel that. You can sense that. So they start wondering: Did Otto frame Burton so that he could, he could have Georgia? Yeah, get rid of him and have her all to himself. Otto's neighbor came forward. She said she had heard screaming from his garage the day Stephanie went missing. From Not only Otto's that, garage. Yeah. Not only that, she said a hoe and a shovel that had been missing from her garage. Not a hoe as a prostitute, no. but a a garden hoe. Right. So they brought We're missing. Yeah. yeah. So and they brought shovel. Otto in for questioning. Okay. At first, he denied an affair and the rumors from his neighbor. Mm-hmm. On the day in question, Otto's wife was working at the beauty parlor. He went in, the, and there was a woman there who had a parking ticket. He volunteered to take her parking ticket to the parking bureau and pay it. So that puts him in Alameda when Stephanie disappears, hmm. which is an ironclad alibi. Yeah, because you can they probably have record of yep. everybody in there. Yeah. So the line of questioning stopped right there. So ironclad. Police, police decided... That there had to be something up at the cabin that the cops had missed. Yeah. 
on July 20th. Yep, 1955 is, is where we are in the timeline. They went out and looked around. Mm-hmm. Finally, at the end of the day, they got some bloodhounds who hit on a scent at a location way up on a steep hill. Mm-hmm. As they get closer, they see a little saddle shoe sticking out of the Aww. dirt. They had found her. It was about 330 feet from the cabin. They could tell from bug larvae that she had been killed shortly after her abduction. There had been some very severe blunt force trauma to her head. They saw that her underpants had been around her throat. (sighs) So police arrested her. So real quick, I mean, you listen to these all the time. So they could tell from bug larvae. Like the stage of the bug larvae? In her body? Yeah. Like bugs that have... Yeah. They could figure out like... Because the, the blue bottle fly, I think it's called. Yeah. Blue fly... No, what's it called? I don't care what. A, anyway, they, but whatever bug goes into dead bodies. Yeah, they they lay the lay they lay eggs like at a specific time after somebody's died. Really? Yeah, and then they hatch and stuff. How and do they know it. when the bug got there though? Like, I don't know. I don't. But they can just tell that. Yeah, they'll, they they'll can tell. Bugs appear at this time. Mm-hmm. Of, that's crazy that that's so I common know. that they know how to do that. Well, that's what they body farms for, you know. That's what I want to do. Uh, no, I don't want to do body farm. I want to do the other thing I told you about. Okay, let's not. I don't want to talk about your dead body or my dead body. Okay, so anyway. I don't want to talk about it over my dead body. On November 7th. Oh, 1955, the same day that I Love Lucy aired on CBS. On this episode, the Ricardos arrive home in New York where Ricky enjoys fame and adulation. Also, Fred Felch's Ethel. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, that's. I think <laughs> allegedly that's what that's happens. That's what happened. You can just assume. Um, so that's when the trial started. Okay. It was and it was packed. Burton Abbott had no emotion that was consistent with the fact that he was facing homicide and the possibility of a death sentence. So that the flag, right? If he doesn't show emotion, it means he's like some kind of psycho psychopath maybe. or uh, he was very glib and charming, it said. He was glib and charming? Yeah. So Laughing you, and joking to the media. Yeah, so that's weird, right? Yeah. Burton said on the day in question he left for Trinity County at about ten AM. The waitress said she had seen him at the chuck wagon Thursday night, but the bartender at the Wildwood Inn remembered it differently. He said he thought it was Friday, not Thursday. So the DA wanted to show that if Ab- Abbott was a liar about one thing, chances are he's a liar, he's a liar about, about other things. Finally, the prosecution brings out their secret weapon, forensic expert Paul Kirk. He oh, was a God, nationally renowned criminologist. Paul Kirk, he's going to fix it. He had found fibers in Burton Abbott's trunk. That matched the fibers in Stephanie's sweater. Really? As fibers. As well as hair that matched hers in the trunk. Oh, so that's ironclad. So, and I totally and was... And get this. Hold on. This I is going to be this is gonna the, be the nail in the coffin right here. Nail in the coffin, y'all. On his boots, they found dirt that matched the dirt nine inches down into Stephanie's grave. Whoa. Nine inches down. Yeah. So, so it had to be him. It had to be him. And plus he's acting fucking weird for a guy who's yeah. you know Yeah. So the prosecution laid out their story. So who cares that Otto at this point you who cares that Otto was cheating? Right. Or uh George, what's the wife? Georgia. Georgia was cheating with Otto. You know, she probably sent something was up with her crazy ass husband. Maybe. So the she prosecution, was seeking the love of another man. The prosecution laid out their story. On April 28th, Stephanie Bryan was walking home from school. Yeah. Burton grabbed her, hit her so she, he could get control of her. He then put her in the car. Okay. He had an instrument that he used to inflict blunt force trauma. It's always <sighs> hard to say. And yeah. then when he was finished with her, he put her in the trunk and drove up to Trinity. He buried her 300 feet from his cabin. And then on his way home, he discarded the French book. Then he buried the rest under his house. So he just like, bla- like 
he was so sure he would never get caught, yeah. right? Yeah. Because why would you bury it so close to your house? Well, and and I think he just thought, I'm a stranger. Yeah, nobody's going to suspect well, me. Uh, right. There's I have no connection to this person. So if that purse had never been found, yeah. he would have never probably been probably. implicated at all. Until, right? Unless somebody else moved into that house and got the... But he's also like a rich white guy that... Yeah, that's true, too. Like, just probably assumes he can do whatever he wants. So yeah. chances are he's probably done whatever he wanted his whole life. He's probably, probably taking advantage of shit like that. So, I wonder if he's murdered other people. Um, the jury deliberated for six days. Then okay. on the seventh day, the jury was back. Burton was found guilty. He was sentenced to death. On March 15th, 1957, Burton was executed. He was executed the same day that on Blondie, Dagwood's uncle sends him a statue of an Indian idol that is bad luck to all in its path on NBC. Oh. Also, um... Dagwood, the male guy that Dagwood always crashes into, what? slept with a. Are you trying to make something? Uh, up well, yeah, because the ethyl and the felching. I was going to try and stay consistent with that, but I couldn't think of anything. Well, can't all be winners, then. No, but Fred did felch ethyl. I don't even know what felching is. Um, okay, so did you? Is that it? That's it. That's the whole story. That wood was. Did you know there was a. Blondie show based on the comic strip? No. There was. And I watched a couple episodes. It's like, it wasn't good. Oh. Um, you know, it's it's like all those old 50s shows. But anyway, so that was that was a roller coaster of a murder. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it thanks. was sad. Yeah, that is sad. So let's finish up. We got to finish July and we got some August stuff. Can we take a minute? So yeah, I... you want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's so do. So you can decompress. I need to use the facilities. You don't want to finish July and then use the facilities? All right. I got three things, then we'll, we'll take a break between July and August. Okay. For a sponsor. All right. Go for it. July 22nd, we have a birthday. Uh, Hit it, Matt Truman Ego Trip. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates uh, birthdays. Born on July 22nd, 1955 in Appleton, Wisconsin, one of eight children of Muriel Isabel mm-hmm. and Dr. William Alfred Daffo. Uh, this person recalled in 2009, quote, my five sisters raised me because my father was a surgeon, my mother was a nurse, and they worked together, so I didn't see either of them, mu- them much. In high school, he acquired the nickname Willem, which is the Dutch version of the name William. This is Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe! He attended Appleton East High School, team colors red, white, and blue, home of the Patriots. Notable alumni include Christine Boscoff, a mountaineer. Defoe studied drama at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, but left after a year and a half to join the experimental theater company Theater X in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, before moving to New York City in 1976. Willem yeah. Defoe is your favorite. Yeah, not and, really. And I love Photoshopping uh, no, you do. Willem Defoe in a Speedo into people's family photos. Yeah, you know you do. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and then July 26th. 26. July 26th, the 40 and slip, because this is a sexy thing I'm about to talk about. July 26th, 1955, Ted Allen throws a record 72 consecutive horseshoe ringers. Wow. That's, that's a must lot. Have, I bet that was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know what? You go use the restroom, and I'm going to talk to our listeners about something that's changed me recently. Folks, 
I have always drank a lot of coffee. Um, I can't leave the house without at least half a pot of coffee. Like I, I always say, it's dangerous for me to drive until I've had uh, about a half a pot of coffee. I love coffee. I love the taste of it. I've always loved coffee. Uh, my name is Joe, and I like a cup of Joe. However, I recently came across a new little drink, little tiny, itty-bitty green drink called Magic Mind. Um, I've been really interested in these natural supplements and things like that. Um, I'm not a medicine guy. I definitely have ADD. I've never been diagnosed, but my whole family has ADD. I don't think you can function in society without ADD. So I drink a lot of coffee. I definitely have ADD. I don't like medicine, so I don't take it. So I've been kind of just wondering, is there something I could take naturally that would kind of help with stuff? I love natural supplements. Anyway, came across this little thing called Magic Mind, and it's just this little tiny green drink. It doesn't taste bad. kind of tastes like apples or something. It takes one second to drink. And what I've noticed when I drink it in the morning, you're supposed to drink it kind of with your co- your coffee. Um. But after I drink it, I don't need any more coffee. So I haven't tried just this yet. I still drink a cup of coffee. Then I drink this. Like usually about halfway through my second cup. And then I stop drinking. I don't need any more coffee because I feel good and awake. Um, I'm always waiting for that elusive wake, woke up feeling. And I usually drink too much coffee. And then I finally, eh, I've drank too much coffee. I got to stop. But with this, I don't need any more coffee. So it's it's pretty cool. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not a doctor, <clears throat> anything like that. So the stuff that's in it, I'm not exactly sure uh, what these things are. Uh, they have a lot of nootropics, which I Googled, and I saw that it's, you know, it's like healthy supplement type stuff, uh, which I've never heard of. But the, the things it has in it, I guess, are L-theanine, uh, which paired with coffee helps you increase focus and attention. Um kind of works with the caffeine, so it doesn't totally replace your your coffee, although I'm kind of thinking I might be able to. Uh, Lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms. Uh, I definitely notice that I don't have to drink as much coffee. Usually when I drink a half a pot of coffee, I'm jittery for a while, but this kind of cuts that out. So give it a try. Uh, The cool thing is they like American timelines. That's the coolest thing about Magic Mind is – They love American Timelines. And so they've given me a code that I can share with my listeners and and a link uh, to get a discount. You can get 40% off a subscription. They really want you to do the subscription. I think they're so confident that you do that. Everybody does that now. So you can get for 10 days, you can get 40% off your subscription at www.magicmind.co slash ATL for American Timelines. When I saw the code, I was like, Atlanta? What does that have to do with it? But it's American Timelines, ATL. And you can use my discount code, ATL20. Again, it's uh, HTTPS if you want the little, you know, private thing. www.magicmind.co slash ATL. Discount code ATL20. So anyway, I'm telling you, it seems to work pretty good. I've been taking it for four days now. um, And... I'm telling you, I just don't bother the rest of my coffee, which for me is not something you normally would do. I love, I freaking love coffee almost as much as I love craft beer. Anyway, so Magic Mind is something you should check out. So check out Magic Mind, www.magicmind.co slash ATL, and your code is 
ATL 20 for American Timelines. Seriously, check it out. I think I feel great. I think I feel healthy. Uh, and I think that's helping. So check it out, y'all. And thank you, Magic Mind, for loving American Timelines. I love you, too. Boom. And here comes my beautiful wife back from her break. Okay, you ready? I got some interesting stuff for, for you I think you'll okay, like. Okay, let's swing it. So Get your dick out. I will get my dick out, uh, like the kids in the hall. If you haven't seen the new kids in the hall, the reboot, uh, check out the first episode because you get to see Kevin McDonald's penis uh, and the other guy. You get to see two of the kids, <laughs> kids in the hall's penis. Anyway, so I'm going to get my penis out in honor of them. So do you, back to August 1955. Yes. What is your feeling on uh, Hugh Hefner? He's a pig. You think so? Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story of something he did that I think, well, I don't think it'll change your complete opinion on him, but it might. might, get a little respect for him? Yeah, you might, um, yeah, have a little respect for him. You said Hugh Hefner, right? Hugh Hefner, yeah. I get him and Howard Hughes confused all the time. So Hugh Hefner is a playboy guy. Yes, I know. So he... He, uh, yeah, so, you know, he's famous for Playboy and having all those, you know, eight wives or whatever. Right. And they're all young Playboy models. But I, part of me thinks he, he's gay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's probably, that's probably why they're all willing to be, like, he's probably gay and doesn't like any of them. I, I doubt it. Yeah, maybe not. But here, here's another thing for, he just, I don't know, always wearing that bathroom. Anyway, in August of 1955, Playboy published sci-fi writer and famed Twilight Zone scribe Charles Beaumont's The Crooked Man. Have you ever heard of The Crooked Man? I don't think so. So it was uh, written in his 20s. Beaumont's short story followed a man named Jesse who was forced to hide his heterosexuality in an alternate universe where all inhabitants were gay and straight relationships were criminalized. Oh, wow. So by the time the story reached Playboy editor-in-chief Hugh Hefner, it had already been rejected by Esquire. That's some anti-homosexual propaganda for the 50s. Anti. Be anti-gay because you're you're drumming up fear that the gays want to take over and turn everybody gay. One only has to consider the political climate of the time to understand why they rejected it. No, it's the opposite. Like, it's... It's showing an alternate universe where gay and straight relationships are. Where the gay. Where straight charge. relationships are criminalized. Right. Like it's showing the opposite. It's showing I you. I got it. Yeah. yeah. So it's not anti gay at all. It's like it's like showing you, like, hey, look look how it would be if the shoe was on the other foot. Like, oh, I see. It's like showing you, like, look what gay people have to deal with. Right. Um, and that's why they other everyone else rejected it because they didn't want to normalize gay yeah. relationships. So in the wake of renewed p- patriotism after World War II and rising Cold War tensions, U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy drove his fear-fueled brand of nationalistic paranoia dubbed McCarthyism to its apex in the 50s. It didn't just trigger the Red Scare, but also the lesser-known Lavender Scare, mm-hmm. in which gay men and women in America believed to be communist sympathizers were actively blocked or fired from government employment and military service. I worry that's coming again. Thousands of homosexual men and women lost their livelihoods as a result. With anti-sodomy laws on the books in every state, homosexuality was effectively illegal. 
It wasn't until 1962 that, that Illinois became the first state to remove criminal penalties for consensual sodomy. Meanwhile, in urban areas across the country, the U.S. State Department gave local law enforcement the power to regularly raid mm-hmm. underground gay bars and jail their patrons yep. since LGBT people represented perversion and threatened America's safety. Uh-huh. The riots outside Greenwich Village's Stonewall Inn in June 1969 after one such raid launched the gay rights movement as we know it today. So this was way, way before all that. This right. was 55. Yeah. So following the ni- August 1955 publication of The Crooked Man and Playboy, Heff received a barrage of hate mail. He also received letters of understanding. As Hef said at the time of public publication, if it is wrong to persecute heterosexuals in a homosexual society, then the reverse is wrong too. Good. Uh, so yeah, so I I was surprised you saw it the other the other way. Like I that, guess that, I that I guess anti-gay. I'm thinking of current rhetoric and how um, that's basically the right the far right's argument now is that, is that teachers are groomers and when we talk about homosexuality at school we're trying to turn kids gay yeah you're trying to get rid of and, all the straight people and yeah. that the gays are trying to convert everybody gay and that till the gays are gonna be the majority or something i don't know well they're scared of that because that's what they've been doing right the whole time their right. whole life right you know like it's such a crazy time in that now kids are so many kids are feeling empowered to come out and it's still, there's not enough. Still, it's not enough, but comparatively to when we were kids, you yeah. know, you and I were just talking about this with our kids. Like mm-hmm. we live in a rural area of North Carolina of the South and our, our kids know and are friends with a lot of gay, yeah. transgender, kids. everything kids mm-hmm. by, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they're, ex- and they accept it and they, they don't even, think about it think anything different about like they don't like it's just normal for them which is heartening for me and you i mean just knowing that you well and and it makes me that part it makes me kind of hopeful for the future yeah because the kids the future kids don't give a shit what you are yeah i mean they're friends with everybody and that's right um so that that's that's i feel like i'm more I have more hope because I have kids and I see that Yeah. where somebody else my age who didn't have kids would be like, so ah, the, everything sucks. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why the government and there's so much anti rhetoric right now for everything, critical race theory, because they see the writing on the wall, that that's a last, mm-hmm. it's their last ditch effort at trying to yeah. hold on to the status quo. And I think they really, they feel threatened. They see that the world is changing it is progressing. You can't stop progress, and it's got a lot of scared, white, rich people, straight, yeah. you know, people scared. I think deep down they gonna... realize that learning and reading mm-hmm. make people tend to go become Democrats because yeah. it's, you know, you look at the the reality of the way things are. Yeah. And For now, until the Democratic Party, until that gets hijacked by some crazy Trump. Right. You know, the parties, I, you know, that's why I can't subscribe to either party just because I think right now right. Th- that seems right. But in 40 years from now, there could be another party and the democratic party could be crazy hijacked by a crazy yeah. nut like the GOP is anyway. So that happened in August, August 3rd, hurricane Connie begins pounding the U S for 11 days, making landfall in North Kakalaki and traveling to the great lakes. Wow. And then August 7th, we have another birthday. Amy, 
Wayne Knight, American actor born in New York. You know who Wayne Knight is? Yes. You do? Yes. Who is he? Newman. Hello, Newman. Yeah. He was he was born in New York, but he, his family moved to Cartersville, Georgia, where his father worked in the textile industry, and he played football. Uh, but I couldn't find the school he went to Thank exactly. Thank God. That, so, sorry. Uh, and then August 17th, 1955, Hurricane Diane, Jeez. following Hurricane Connie, floods C- the Connecticut River, killing 190 people wow. and doing $1.8 billion in damage. That's a pretty penny back then. Yeah. Do you know who the singer Pete Seeger is? Yes. August 18th of 1955, he was brought before the U.S. House Un-American Activities mm-hmm. Committee for alleged communist activities and he responded to questioning by offering to sing songs for the committee yeah (laughs) you remember that he was sentenced to a year in jail for contempt of congress uh yeah so that kind of yeah so just a whole nother like Mm -hmm. witch hunt of yep of people uh for being liberals and then august 19th uh w-i-n-s radio in new york city Mm -hmm. announces it will not play copy white cover versions of R&B records by black artists. Oh, good. So DJs will play Fats Domino's Ain't That a Shame, not Pat Boone's. Good. Isn't that great? Yeah. So that was a thing. I didn't know that that happened, that yeah. a, a, a radio station would stand up like that. So check out WINS Radio. I don't know if it, I should have checked if it still exists. But. Probably not. And that brings us to August 21st. Mm-hmm. You don't think WINS radio still exists? I mean, these radio stations last forever, Do don't they? they? Oh. Yep, it's still a thing. 1010 wins all news all the time. It's now a news station, looks like. So, anyway, the August 21st, 1955 is the date of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Ooh. Do you know? Are you familiar with this one? No. Being somebody like you who listens yeah. to a lot of like last podcasts on the left and stuff, I thought you already know this one. I don't think so. This one is the basis of the Little Green Men. Like this okay. is where it started. Yeah. A lot of people say. Um, so this is also known as the Hopkinsville Goblins case, the Kelly Greenman case. It was it. Uh, it claimed close encounter with extraterrestrial beings in 1955 near Kelly and Hopkinsville in Christian County, Kentucky, U.S. UFOologists regard it as one of the most significant and well-documented cases in the history of UFO incidents. While skeptics say the reports were due to the effects of excitement and misidentification of natural phenomena such as meteors and or owls. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Just owls. The U.S. Air Force classified the alleged incident as a hoax in the Project Blue Book files. So, yeah. And psychologists have used this incident as an academic example of pseudoscience to help students distinguish truth from fiction. Uh, So let's get into it. Uh, I found a lot of this on history.com and allthatsinteresting.com. So I kind of melded the two Mm -hmm. and put them in my own words uh, because it takes a little time to do that. Uh, So bottom line. 21-year-old Billy Ray Taylor of Pennsylvania and his 18-year-old wife were visiting a friend named Elmer Lucky Sutton Mm -hmm. at his farmhouse in the tiny town of Kelly, Kentucky, on August 21st, 1955. Okay. So Billy Ray and Elmer had worked on a traveling carnival together. (laughs) Oh, boy. So they're carnies. Uh, So the Suttons, uh, Elmer's family, uh, 
included his mother, 50-year-old widow and matriarch of the family, Glennie Lankford, mm-hmm. her two older sons and their wives, a brother-in-law, and the widow's three younger children, 12, 10, and 7, all lived on this farm. Okay. Billy Ray, who was visiting, went outside to the well to collect some water. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have plumbing yeah. in this house or anything. Uh, he saw something streaking across the sky, which he described as a silvery object. He said it was real bright and an, with an exhaust, all the colors of the rainbow. What? Yep. He freaked out. He ran inside, and he told the Sutton family and his wife uh, that he just saw a UFO. It came silently towards the house. He said it came silently towards the house, passed over it, stopped in the air, and then dropped straight to the ground. He said he didn't hear an explosion or anything. He just heard a hissing noise as the object landed somewhere behind the farmhouse. No one really took him seriously until the dogs began to bark at something outside about an hour later. The dogs, oh, yeah. dogs were going nuts. They, yeah. So uh, Lucky and Billy Ray went to the back door and made out a strange glow in the midst of which they spied a small humanoid creature about three and a half feet tall. It had an oversized head, almost perfectly round. Its arms extended almost to the ground. Its hands had talons, and its oversized eyes glowed with a yellowish light. The body gave off an eerie shimmer in the light of the moon, they said. It was it, like it was made of silver metal. Wow. Terrified, the two men grabbed a 20-gauge shotgun and a twenty-two rifle and fired at the little man. Its hands now raised as if held up at gunpoint as it came toward the back door. Uh, then they reported that it did a flip, scrambled upright, and fled into the darkness. <laughs> Shortly after... What are you laughing? This is serious. You yeah, did a flip. We had to do that little flip first. Did a flip. Shortly after, the men saw a similar creature appear in a side window, and they fired through the window screen. Still impervious to bullets, the little man again flipped, then disappeared. <laughs> Uh, I'll see you later. Yeah, so but it's impervious to impervious to bullets. I went out in the hallway and crouched down next to Billy when I saw one approaching the door. Mrs. Langford told Isabel Davis, author of an extensive report called Close Encounter at Kelly and others of 1955. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs. It was a sh- as sh- it was a shimmering bright metal like on my refrigerator. Over the next few hours, the aliens would come close and then run away. They flipped up into the trees when the dudes tried to shoot them. Mm-hmm. Billy Ray was standing near a roof overhang when a claw-like hand reached down and touched his hair, and the group screamed and pulled Taylor back while Lucky shot above the overhang uh, and then a, another Jeez. similar creature in a nearby tree. And that creature floated to the ground and then scurried into the woods. The Suttons moved inside and spent several hours listening for movements, hearing mostly occasional scratches on the roof. Wow. Finally, when all seemed quiet, eight of them piled into a car and fled into, into town to beg the police for help. Mm-hmm. And that's happened. By, by 11 p.m., they showed up at the cops. Uh, the police were like, what? They showed up at Hopkinsville, Kentucky Police Station in a state of panic. We need help, one gas. We've been fighting them for nearly four hours. Four city police, including a chief of police, Russell Greenwell, drove out to the Sutton Farmhouse to see what had happened. Aliens or not, the crowd at the police station had seemed genuinely terrified. One man had a pulse of 140 beats per minute, allegedly, and uh, Greenwell noted, these aren't the type of people who normally run to the police for help. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who just grab their guns. Mm-hmm. After the local police chief called for backup, his team was then joined at the Sutton Farm by state police, military police from nearby Fort Campbell, and a photographer from the Kentucky New Era uh, local 
newspaper. There, investigators found shell casings from the gunshots, but nothing else. Uh, they couldn't find any any proof of anything, but they also couldn't find any proof of heavy drinking, which everybody thinks they're really drunk, mm-hmm. and that's why they're saying this. But they didn't find any, like, alcohol or anything. Hmm. And according to uh, everybody in town, uh, the matriarch, uh, what was her name, the mom, she didn't allow alcohol. Uh, at the oh. farmhouse, so they said liquor was not allowed. She, they didn't. She didn't even allow swearing. They said, uh, so police didn't find any obvious evidence of aliens, but they didn't find any obvious evidence of intoxication either. Um, uh, during the investigation, one of the officers did accidentally step on a cat's tail in the darkness outside, oh, and it went nuts. And nothing else happened. Sergeant Frank Dudas was not among the officers who visited the Sutton farmhouse, but the summer before, he and another officer had reported seeing three flying saucers in this area. Oh. So he said he thought the whole story was plausible. Uh, he said he, he said if I saw them, then their story could be true. According to that same article, other officers were reluctant to give their opinions. They Nobody wanted to even say anything. Well, that's, nobody ever wants to say, admit that. That they saw that, that they might be crazy. Yeah. Well, so. and it, it ruins people's lives. Like, I don't know if you know who Whitley Stryber is. Is that the guy, Fire in the Sky guy? No. He um, wasn't, was he an actor or writer? I think he was a writer. And uh, he wrote he wrote some movies. I, can't I think remember. it was Fire in the Sky, right? No. No, that was Travis uh, oh. something. Smalley or something. But um, Whitley Stryber was abducted. He says he was abducted by aliens several times. And it, um, he came out about it, and it ruined his career. Really? And Yeah. Yeah. But he's got, like, he he wrote books about it. About so people don't want to, yeah. But people ostracized him because they thought he was crazy and stuff. So Mrs. Lankford, the old lady who doesn't let anybody drink, said, once the police and everybody left, the creatures returned between 2.30 a.m. and daybreak. Mrs. Langford said she saw one glowing repeatedly by her bedside window with its call-like hand on the screen. Ew. So people started to not believe the Suttons anymore, though, because later they tried to profit off interest oh, in the story by yeah. charging admission to their farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so any remaining goodwill towards them vanished, vanished. at that point. Yep. Uh, neighbors grew cold and threatening. Ten days later, the Suttons left Kelly for good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the alleged explanations that mm-hmm. came up uh, were that people said great, some great horned owls can yeah. get real fierce mm-hmm. when protecting their nests and they can when they when they spread their wings they can look like their talons or aren't you know they owls can look kind of weird crazy and they kind of shine reflect the moon and yeah. stuff owls owls are weird as hell man they make some weird noises and stuff well, and that's like the staircase remember the staircase or did i make you yeah, watch it was that? an owl attacking somebody's head or something that's the theory one theory well another theory on this one was uh, uh a sheriff from nearby town arthur hoss kanzler he had joined other policemen at the sutton farmhouse on that night and in, according to his telling everybody was drunk and somebody some were tossing a cat onto a screen door to scare the people inside. Mm-hmm. So he thinks it was just drunken people throwing cats was all the Oh, noise. I hope not. That's not I, I don't know. That's according to that guy. But most people it agreed that Glennie Langford did not allow alcohol, so that could have been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most thorough investigations of the Kelly incident was undertaken in 1956 by UFOologist, like I said, Isabel Davis, mm-hmm. who who published that, that uh, book later. Um 
And several decades later, the Center of UFO Studies, uh, a group founded by astronomer, astronomer Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Project Blue Book civilian investigator, uh, they collaborated, and in her 200-page report, co-written with Ted Bloker, in, that includes detailed maps, drawings, documentary records, summaries of similar accounts around the world, and interviews with several Sutton family members and police investigators. But Davis summarized the latter's concern about the lack of physical evidence. But to her reckoning, none of the possible explanations, a deliberate hoax, a publicity play, group hallucinations, none of it made sense for these people. Like mm. These weren't the type of people that would do that. Uh, do that. So it's jury's out. Jury's we out. don't know. We don't know what that is. Hmm. And that same day of that Some UFO of that incident, real far fetched though. Yeah, it's like def- the rainbow smoke coming out of the UFO. That sounds the like rainbow that. exhaust. Yeah, that sounds. But you know, I mean, you know how you see prisms and stuff, yeah, and like certain could be. things. It's probably just that, you know. Depending on what and the, the glowing was. eyes, I don't know. And the well, talons. owls, owls' eyes glow. When Deer's like talons eyes glow. and glowing eyes. That sounds like an owl. Well, if you look up that, if you look this up online, they have a drawing of what it looked like. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it looks more like a possum, like a possum mixed with an owl kind of thing. But, but they said its its head was a circle. Yeah, but it had these long ears. Um, long which, ears, which they didn't mention in here. Yeah, oh. so if you look up Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, they got oh, see the e- the ears. It's got yeah. these big ear things. So. It kind of looks like Lilo and Stitch or whatever, the, mm-hmm. whichever ones. I don't know which one's the Stitch, alien I thing. think, is the alien thing. But anyway, so the weird, so one weird thing about this, the same day of this encounter mm-hmm. is the same day that Emmett Till arrives in Money, Mississippi mm-hmm. a week before he's murdered. And we all know about Emmett Till, right? Emmett Till's really yeah. super famous. Um, and so because we've, we've got a whole episode done and Emmett Till is – too important of a th- incident to, gloss over. Yeah. to just gloss over. I'm going to just leave it here, and we're going to do a special episode about just about Emmett Till. Yeah, uh, and then we'll get back into the timeline. So even though this happened in August 1955, again, it's it's too big of a thing to just mention real quick. So right. we're going to do a special episode. We're gonna we're working on getting some guests to help us talk through this, uh, but. Yeah, we'll be back with a very special episode of American Timelines. Yes. Uh, but that's going to end our timeline for now. Um, nice. I mean, August 31st, there was the first sun-powered automobile that was demonstrated in Chicago, Illinois. I don't know whatever happened to that. But that's all I have for July and August. All right. And then we'll come back with our special episode in two weeks. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. It's uh, time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Yeah, nothing better than a UFO story to end uh, I know. episode. Oh, sweet. It was sweet. I love you. I love you. I love, I you. love you, man. Oh, yeah, I thought you were talking to me. No, I'm talking to our listeners. Oh. Hey, hey, male listeners, I love you. All right, it's getting weird. And female listeners, I also love you. That's getting really weird. And everybody else, I also love you. I love everybody. Older listeners, you, do I love you, you. Do you even love, like, um, Mitch McConnell? If he listens to our podcast, you said you love everybody. I mean, I love everybody who's listening. Oh, okay. If Mitch McConnell listens to our podcast, I get while I appreciate the numbers he's giving me, 
Fuck Mitch McConnell, man. <laughs> yeah. That guy sucks. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Fuck Mitch McConnell. Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music. <laughs>